Welcome to the Suburban Abyss, weekly transmissions from the leafy green nowhere. Music, pop culture, pandemic life, yard work, remote work, and the eternal quest for discount groceries. Instead of skipping this week entirely, I decided to string together all eight parts of the moving saga, as it's come to be known, that kicked off the start of the Suburban Abyss blog and podcast. If you're new here, this eight-part story details how our family decided to move from Boise back to my native Northeast Ohio during the peak of the summer COVID surge in 2020. If you already know the story, this is an easy way to revisit it from start to finish. Thank you for listening. Episode 1. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why, part 1. It started with Pittsburgh. The new year 2020 was underway, and we'd been talking about moving. In recent years, our friends had grown accustomed to hearing us allude to a move back east, but we rarely lingered on the topic or offered anything in the way of specifics because we didn't have any. Even amongst ourselves, the dinner conversations with my wife Erica and daughter Magnolia held little more than vague notions that vaporized by the time we cleared the table. But the tone of these conversations had been shifting. Discussions were deepening, and they were lingering. During Christmas break 2019, as we returned to the table night after night for board games, red wine, and holiday sugar, so too did the topic of moving, which made sense because we were deep into a move within our house, trading bedrooms with Magnolia and upgrading her new space with carpet and paint that we had purchased with our holiday bonuses. We were not, however, thinking any bigger at this point. The room switch was all about preparing Magnolia for adolescence and giving her more space to grow through junior high and high school in Boise. Only later, and retroactively, did we mark the project as the first of several upgrades and repairs we would make in the next half year to get our house ready to sell. But back to Pittsburgh. After Christmas break, with the wassled glow of the holiday season and that new carpet smell fading away, talk of moving briefly left the table as the churn of daily life, work, school, lessons, practices, once again took over. But the following Sunday, January 12 to be exact, the newspaper brought us, along with details of a strange new virus emerging in China, a parade magazine with a cover shot of shiny downtown Pittsburgh and the bold declaration, Live here and live to 100. I normally ignore parade. Nothing against this American print institution or its perpetual smile tone, but I have better things to do with my Sunday morning than peruse the latest commemorative plate offerings or suffer the everything is awesome repartee between Kristen Bell and the interviewer lobbing her softballs. But this issue was different. Erica saw it first, read the cover story, and brought it to my attention, probably the first time in 16 years of reading Sunday papers together that she had brought a parade article to my attention. And just like that, the moving talk was reignited. What do you know about Pittsburgh? Erica asked me. And what I knew about Pittsburgh was, more than any other Rust Belt town in the past 20 or so years, it had built itself a reputation as a hip, artsy, and affordable place to live. And I mentioned this to Erica from the position of someone who, despite growing up two hours away in northeast Ohio, had never set foot in Pittsburgh, yet had read and heard, via several reliable sources, that it had built itself a reputation as a hip, artsy, and affordable place to live. I also mentioned Warhol and pierogies. I read the article next and agreed, as much as it pained me to agree with an innocuous listicle and parade, especially one giving mad props to the home of the six-time Super Bowl champion Steelers, that Pittsburgh sounded like an ideal landing spot, not to mention a good place to die if you desire to live longer than your average Milwaukeean. Door-to-door, it's a one-hour, 48-minute drive to my parents' house in Stowe, Ohio, and only four hours to northwest Philadelphia, home to the majority of the creative team Erica works with at her job as a senior graphic designer. A cursory comparison of home prices in Philly and Pittsburgh provided further evidence that Steel City just might be right for our family when it came time to move, and the more and more we talked, 
the more and more it felt like the time to move had come. So how did we get to this point anyway? Isn't Boise Lake the it city of it cities right now? The rare mid-market artsy tech low-crime gem that creative class parents like us dream about finding and inhabiting until we've avocadoed our last toast? And wasn't Boise really good to us over the last 14 years? Enriching our lives with a phenomenal kid and more personal, professional, and creative fulfillment than any other place we've lived? Yes and yes, but. There's a lot of buts, and we'll take a good look at all of them in a later episode, but there's one big but that kept sticking out more than any other. Family. And more specifically, our parents. Mine are in their early 70s and relatively healthy, but scary shit is starting to happen. Erica's mom and stepdad are in their late 60s and also relatively healthy, but scary shit will start happening to them too. Seeing these people only once or twice a year was already starting to feel unacceptable by the time Erica lost her grandfather and father in a span of nine months in 2017 and 2018. Suddenly, the thousands of miles between Boise and our parents started feeling like millions. But back to Pittsburgh again. Even if we never live there and the Browns never get to the Super Bowl and we end up flipping the script and hauling ass back west to Scottsdale for the sunset years, Steel City will forever live in our family lore for initiating that first capital S serious talk about moving. We found ourselves asking legit, oh my god, are we really considering this? Questions. What would a move across the country look like? What would we need to do to make it happen? And when, reasonably speaking, would we hit the road? First things first, we had our daughter to consider. Magnolia was privy to these conversations from the start and all in on a big move, even though it meant a hard reset on school, friends, and extracurricular activities. She was halfway through sixth grade at this point, and letting her finish out the school year in Boise was our top priority. So that took us to summer 2020 at the earliest, but faced with long lists of home repairs and moving logistics, half a year felt premature, and a bit hasty. Then there was work. Given her company's good track record of supporting remote scenarios even before the word coronavirus entered casual conversation, Erica was fairly confident she could keep her job, but it wasn't a given. For me, as the marketing director for an independent record store based at Boise, it likely meant a hard reset on work and finding a new gig where we landed, or finding a new gig that determined where we landed. All of which said to us, we need more time. In any case, there was no need to rush. We had a good thing going in Boise. We liked our jobs, we liked the schools, we liked our social lives, and for the first time in a long time we were starting a new year with firm hands on the wheel after years of occasional spin-outs. We also had grown far less impulsive than we had been in our younger years. Dare I say we matured. And anyway, impulsive wasn't going to cut it with a cross-country move involving a kid, a dog, a cat, and much higher stakes than we had in our 20s. So where to go from here? Simply saying let's do it is much different than actually doing it, and we didn't want to look back in 10 years at what we didn't do. Not for something this big, this important. So we gave ourselves a deadline. By spring 2021, we would be back east. Episode 2. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 2. What about Hudson? Hudson, Ohio? Yeah. Really? You know that part of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where Cousin Eddie and crew show up unannounced in the RV, prompting Clark to exclaim, If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am now? That's about how I felt when my wife Erica, out of deep, deep left field, lasered Hudson, Ohio at me as a suggested relocation destination. We had only recently declared in private our intention to move back east, working off a short list of one city, Pittsburgh, that we weren't even sure was the one. Nevertheless, Pittsburgh took us from flirting with to dry-humping the idea of moving, following Steel City's starring role in a January 2020 Parade Magazine article, a story that most readers probably shoved their way past to get to the recipe for the anti-aging grain bowl. 
At the outset, Pittsburgh was merely a loose ideal for what we thought we might want, a starting point for something we might not even finish. The paint was still drying on our declaration when Erica brought up Hudson, Ohio. For no good reason, other than I was born and raised in Northeast Ohio and maintained a been-there-done-that attitude toward my homeland, I had never seriously considered moving back. There was that time in 2008 I interviewed for a position at Kent State that I didn't get, but if we're being honest here, that was an act of desperation, one of several, and a vain attempt to jettison a newspaper job that was souring by the day. The only way I ever imagined myself back in Ohio was losing my wife and daughter to some tragedy, selling everything, and self-isolating in my parents' house until I got my shit together again. Growing up in Cuyahoga Falls, a blue-collar, white-collar suburb of Akron, and the second-largest city in Summit County, the neighboring village of Hudson was clearly defined in our imagined class warfare as the area's breeding ground for rich snobs. Kids in Hudson played field hockey and lacrosse and probably had family crests. We played them in sports, at least the sports that normal kids played, so once a season we got to see just how greener the grass was on the other side, and sure enough, Hudson had nicer, and greener, athletic fields than Falls did. Their high school resembled one of those fancy suburban high schools from a John Hughes film, and unlike Falls High, it lacked a poorly lit windowless space called the Old Gym that perpetually smelled like feet and despair. Erica had set foot in Hudson, I don't know, maybe twice? The first time was during one of our yearly visits to Ohio, probably a decade ago by now, when we drove 20 minutes from Cuyahoga Falls for overpriced gourmet cupcakes because of course the only cupcake shop in Summit County was in Hudson. It was early June, sunny and slightly breezy, low humidity, a picture-perfect Ohio summer day. Under the blue sky and puffy white clouds, with the picnic blankets on the village green and the bustling boutiques on Main Street, downtown Hudson looked like a postcard you would buy, well, in a bustling boutique in downtown Hudson. A few years later, our friends Kyle and Emily moved from the falls to Hudson, and the next time we were back in Ohio, we drove out for dinner on the deck overlooking their spacious new property. There were no gourmet cupcakes, but a good time was had by all. We were thrilled to be around old friends, and it felt really good to drive with the windows down on tree-lined blacktop and breathe in the evening air among the rolling, dewy hills. In her teenage and early adult years, Erica lived in a series of quaint New England towns similar to Hudson. One of those towns was, in fact, Hudson, New Hampshire. It's no secret to our friends and family that we have missed living in New England since we moved to Boise from northern New Hampshire, and the Ohio Hudson endeared itself to Erica instantly. Even if the cupcakes had sucked that day, and they didn't, it would have been worth the trip for the tiny New England time warp. I had been giving Erica tours of Northeast Ohio since 2002, and I remember her looking at me as we strolled along the village green like, you didn't bring me here before, why? Still, I needed an explanation, some context, for how in the hell Erica had arrived at Hudson, Ohio, having never spoken of it outside of our short visits, and so soon after we had set our sights, sort of, on Pittsburgh. I've been looking into it. Huh. Erica would later admit that she had been looking into Hudson as far back as the fall of 2019, months before any serious moving talk. The idea certainly was intriguing, and her initial pitch, her only pitch as it were, was pretty solid. Pittsburgh, Erica reasoned, was all well and good, but if we are going to move closer to family, we might as well move really close to family. In moments of crisis, two hours might as well be two days, and anyway, isn't Hudson charming? It looked good on paper, but still, this was Hudson we were talking about, and my knee-jerk reaction was, how the hell are we going to afford it? Thanks to the inferiority complex I developed growing up in a make-believe class war with lacrosse stick-wielding sweater boys named Sasha and Hunter and Chase, 
a town like Hudson seemed out of our league, until Erica had me stroll through a sampling of real estate listings on her phone. Turns out you can get a hell of a lot more house in Hudson for what we were paying in Boise, and with land to boot. All that said, honing in on Hudson wasn't a play for status or ego gratification or proximity to gourmet cupcakes. The shop went out of business anyway. It was all about our daughter. We could have explored any number of more affordable towns near my parents' new house in Stowe, but Hudson had one thing going for it no other zip code did, Summit County's only state top 20 school system. Any potential struggles we faced, financial or otherwise, would be worth the next six years of Magnolia schooling, plus we'd have built-in friends to drink with there. Which is to say, I was sold. So on the last day of January 2020, we reached out to our real estate agent in Boise. Episode 3. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 3. I never really liked our house in Boise. We bought it in the fall of 2006 at the peak of the pre-recession housing bubble. In hindsight, we should have waited six months, but we were young and impulsive, and once our friends had all bought homes and our landlord raised our rent, we reached a breaking point. Before we wrote another rent check, we quickly pre-qualified, toured a few houses in our price range, and purchased what we thought was the best of the lot, a 40-year-old short-sale ranch on Boise's West Bench. We loved the neighborhood and location, surrounded by parks, 10 minutes to downtown by car and 20 by bike, neighbors we already knew, and 1,452 square feet on 0.2 acres seemed sufficient for a newly married couple with no kids. We were grateful to even be in this position. Moving to Boise from a struggling mill town in northern New Hampshire had improved our financial situation, but it came with a sharp rise in our cost of living, particularly when it came to rent and housing prices. In New Hampshire, we were able to buy our first home for $75,000 on modest income with no down payment. When we arrived in Boise, a starter home was going for double that, and prices were ticking up daily. With the credit card and student loan debt we had carried with us to Idaho, and a lack of savings for a down payment, again, it felt like a minor miracle to have pre-qualified at all, and for a fixed-rate 30-year loan nearly three times the purchase price of our home in New Hampshire. We moved in on a sunny and warm October day one of those picturesque high-desert autumn days that Boiseans cherish. It was exciting to be homeowners again. Erica painted a few of the interior rooms. I dug out a fire pit in the backyard. Together, we chipped away at the landscaping. Everything was fine at first, but it didn't take long to start feeling the effects of our impulsiveness. The minor details we had overlooked in our haste, the plumbing leaks, the tiny kitchen, the lack of storage, quickly evolved into major annoyances. The home inspector left us with a long list of repairs and upgrades that needed to be addressed when time and money allowed, but both were in short supply. We thought we were playing it safe by buying a home in the middle of our price range, but it proved to be a financial struggle from the start. After making our first mortgage payment on the first of the month, by month two we were already delaying payment until the 16th, the final day before the late fee kicked in, and we never found our way back to the first. But we were making it work, and anyway, it wasn't going to be forever. This was our starter home, we told ourselves, a foot in the Boise real estate door that, given the natural trajectory of salaries and home values, we could leverage for a larger house with more land in a few years. Then the bottom fell out of the American dream. Not unlike 2020, 2007 started out with excitement and promise. We had just celebrated the first Christmas in our new home. Our job satisfaction was at an all-time high, and in February, Prince orchestrated the best Super Bowl halftime performance in the history of the game as the Purple Rain poured down on Miami. 
But soon enough, the unease set in. Not unlike COVID-19, talk of a recession in the early days of 2007 rapidly progressed from passive water cooler chatter to troubling murmurs to, oh shit, did you hear what's happening? Working in a newsroom helped attune me to the severity of the looming economic storm, but it still didn't hit home until corporate put us on hiring and wage freezes that spring. A few months later, hours were cut for all non-salaried employees. Two rounds of layoffs followed in 2008. My number came up in the third round, and in the spring of 2009, I found myself jobless. In the middle of all this, in July 2008, we welcomed our first and only child into the world. Magnolia's birth was a pleasant distraction from the havoc of the Great Recession, but shit would get real for us real fast in 2009. Three months after my layoff, and a few weeks after Magnolia's first birthday, Erica's job was cut too. Meanwhile, our house just kept losing value. In 2009, the initial drop was about $17,000. In 2010, down another $29,000. Year after year, the annual assessment notice delivered more grim news, and when the dust finally settled and the economy began its slow healing process, our house had lost nearly $78,000 in value, $3,000 more than the purchase price of our first home in New Hampshire. Our mortgage was deep underwater, and it felt like we were in deep shit. I wanted to run away. To what or where, I didn't know, but anywhere but our shrinking house that we couldn't sell without taking a huge financial hit. We had no choice but to sit and wait it out. I felt like a sucker. Like we'd been swindled. We were trapped in our house, and I was mad at myself for taking the bait in the first place and walking right in with an idiot's grin on my face. It took us a while to find our way out. With our careers at Crossroads in 2009, Erica and I made a pivot to self-employment and joined forces to put our creativity to work. Writing, editing, marketing, photography, graphic design, anything non-sexual we were good at doing that people would pay us to do. It was a long, slow crawl out of the muck, and we lost our footing several times along the way, but by 2020 we had hustled and grunted our way through the gig economy, part-time jobs, and various professional fits and starts to find ourselves in leadership positions with companies we loved and fulfilling roles in the Boise creative community. The house, unfortunately, bore the brunt of this decade-long struggle. That long list of repairs and upgrades remained more or less untouched, and inside and out, our home was showing signs of age and neglect. And it was crowded. There were only three of us in the house, five if you count the cat and the dog, but anyone who has raised a kid can tell you the early childhood years are full of stuff, a steady, rotating, never-ending plush and polymer stream, and it takes up a hell of a lot of room. Also, I collect records. We crammed more storage into a one-car garage that was already too full for a car. We switched rooms around to make our footprint function better. We tried, at least. But we simply had too much stuff for our space. And even with regular purges and a reasonably minimalist lifestyle, we never could make enough room for ourselves. Our house felt perpetually cluttered, and by default, so did our lives. On a positive note, we were able to refinance our loan for free through an economic recovery program and cut our monthly by a few hundred dollars, which helped, but not enough to keep us from falling behind on our mortgage for about 18 months during the low point of our big dig out. Was the struggle worth it? Did I enjoy all the time and energy we put into keeping this roof over our head? Most days, the answer was no. In private moments, far removed from my public face, and usually at three in the morning while my family slept, I was anxious and overwhelmed and suffocating under the weight of it all. I started having these visions of myself as a bent and broken old man, stuck in Idaho in the same decrepit house, estranged from everyone and everything I loved, 
withering away to nothing as the walls crumbled around me. Mercifully, the fog lifted eventually. Boise may have trailed the national rebound, but when our time came, the city roared to life again, and the real estate market, buoyed by West Coast transplants and speculators scooping up foreclosed properties, played a big part in the comeback. In 2013, our assessment notice brought news of the first increase in five years, and for the next half decade, it just kept going up. By 2018, our home's value had increased nearly $80,000, eclipsing our 2006 buying price for the first time ever. In 2019, it shot up another $38,000. In 2020, another $10,000. Suddenly, for the first time in our adult lives, we had an investment ship to cash in if we played our cards right. Exactly how big that ship was, we did not know. But what we did know was encouraging. As a former real estate agent who kept tabs on the market, Erica had been tracking the rising sale prices in our neighborhood for a couple of years. At first, I politely acknowledged her reports before diving my beak back into my shredded wheat, but then the numbers got interesting. And more interesting. By the time we contacted our agent in January 2020, the median home value in our county was up to $363,000, roughly double what we paid for our house in 2006. It came as no surprise to anyone who read their assessment notice that Boise ended 2019 number one in the country for price increase. Our realtor Andrea came over on February 27, a gray, unseasonably warm late winter Thursday. Andrea was the first person to learn of our plans to move to Ohio in the spring of 2021, and her visit was an exploratory step but a big one, even in the context of a 15-month relocation plan. It signaled to ourselves, more than any other past flirtation with our mythical move back east, the seriousness of our intentions, even if by late February 2020 any life planning, long-term or otherwise, had been put on pause until we knew if, or how, the coronavirus would impact our lives in the short term. Nonetheless, we kept the appointment. We walked the house with Andrea, then briefly surveyed the backyard. We asked her what we needed to do to get the property ready to sell, what effect the pandemic might have on the real estate market, and last but not least, what we could expect price-wise. None of us wore masks, which weren't yet a thing, but we all kept our distance as the CDC and others had recommended we do. It was a quick visit anyway. Andrea had sold us the house in 2006, and she knew the market like the back of her hand, so it didn't take long for her to throw us a number, a jaw-dropping figure that erased every moment of anguish from the past decade of our life and a house I never really liked, but suddenly liked very much. The next question was, where do we go from here, and when? But before we could answer, COVID-19 kept us from going anywhere. Episode 4. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 4. On March 25, 2020, life in Idaho was put on pause. Everyone knew what was coming when the governor greeted the morning with a tweet about the important announcement he'd be making that afternoon from the National Guard base. By then, less than two weeks after Idaho's first confirmed COVID case, the pandemic malaise had already settled over the Treasure Valley. Panic shopping, side eyes, and strange behavior everywhere. The creep was on, and you could feel it in the air. It was only a matter of time before the state shut down, and that time came on a partly cloudy Wednesday afternoon, six days after the spring equinox. While the governor was preparing for his press conference, I was ping-ponging around Boise running errands before the reckoning. The liquor store, the vet, the running store. When the gov hit the podium, Magnolia and I had just returned home from the do-it-yourself dog wash after giving a 12-year-old Shepweiler his last proper bath for who knew how long. 
Short of punching my way through Winco to the last pack of one-ply store-brand toilet paper, this was the best I could do at the zero hour to prepare our household for the great unknown. Besides, we were well-stocked on toilet paper, even if that innocuous task had proven ridiculously challenging to complete in the days leading up to the shutdown. Thankfully, we got a head start, which is helpful when you find yourself in grocery cart combat with frothing hoarders. Early afternoon on March 13, Erica had texted me from Fred Meyer before the rush, as she wrote, and I assumed she meant the dinnertime Friday shit show we usually try to avoid. But she was referring to the forthcoming announcement of Idaho's first positive case later that afternoon. A reliable source had tipped her through Facebook. Then at Fred, she overheard a woman in nurse scrubs talking on her phone about getting her shopping done before the announcement. Erica got everything on her list and tossed in a few staples, then went home and ordered a cappuccino machine with a leftover Macy's gift card from Christmas. That evening, we talked strategy and set the alarm. We woke up early on Saturday the 14th and left the driveway in separate vehicles, full divide-and-conquer mode, on parallel missions to stock our pantry and search for Lysol wipes and other increasingly rare booty. Like everyone, we were forced to play the game a bit, and though the panic pirates beat us to most of it, I did manage to snag the last bottle of antibacterial soap and the last two packs of flushable wipes at Staples of all places. That said, we were sensible people, and we refused to pillage the earth for butt wipe in bulk. We didn't have the space for it anyway. The shutdown on the 25th was inevitable, but when the moment arrived and I got home and shut the door for the first time after the governor had ordered me to stay there, it still felt strange. An eerie tonal shift that turned a workaday Wednesday into something not quite like terror, but definitely terrible. In response, I made a pot of chili, got drunk, and went to bed without setting the alarm. The groggy new morning greeted us with a terrifying question. Now what? Fortunately, Erica and I still had jobs. Mostly. Other than mandatory remote work, which for Erica had begun on March 16, it was business as usual for her employer. Working in retail marketing, my situation was a bit murky. The record exchange, which clearly did not qualify as an essential business, was forced to halt everything but our online shops, and my full-time hours marketing an independent record store were temporarily reduced to quarter time. My professional DJ work, which had added thousands of dollars to my annual income over the past seven years, came to a screeching halt on March 13, following a last-night-on-earth type set at the Funky Taco. Our family three hunkered down in our small house and tried to make the best of it. I won't bore you with the nitty-gritty details of what we did to pass the time, because it's the same shit you did to pass the time. We read books, worked puzzles, and binge-watched TV series. We made soups and baked goods, took family walks through the neighborhood, and ordered weekly takeout to support our favorite local restaurants. More important to this story, we found ourselves face-to-face with a house stuffed with stuff, a decade-old to-do list of repairs, and a second terrifying question. Double down or skip town? Our talk of moving back east in 2021 had all but ceased when the pandemic hit, but as we started making piles for the thrift store and packing boxes of stuff we could live without for a year, we asked ourselves, what's the end game here? If the economy tanks, which seemed inevitable, what would the housing market look like in a year, and how many thousands of dollars would we potentially lose by delaying a home sale? More importantly, how many more years would our parents last, and how awful would we feel if we abruptly lost one of them to COVID and we couldn't even leave the state? As we reappraised and rearranged our space, the answer came easily, even if it cut our 15-month plan down to five months. Stuck inside with a sudden wealth of time, 
We started the real work of rehabbing our house so we could get the hell out of it and hightail it to Ohio before the start of the new school year. We called our plumber first. Mountaintop Mike is a burly teddy bear of a guy who rides motorcycles to blow off steam and never shows up for a job without his sweet puppy dog riding shotgun in the truck. He's honest, affordable, and damn good at what he does. The type of dude you want in your caravan when it comes time for a hard charge into the apocalypse. Mike had already been to our house in February to rebuild a toilet, and roughly half of our to-do list involved him in some capacity. Every visit, he inevitably discovered another issue with the 55-year-old network of pipes in the crawlspace underneath the house. When I dialed him up, my first question was, are you currently working? Turns out that's a dumb thing to ask a plumber during a pandemic, or any time, really. In addition to juggling his regular schedule of routine repairs and emergency calls, Mike suddenly had a bunch of thumb-twiddlers like us calling him to take care of long-overdue to-do lists. When we finally got him to the house, we started with the cheapest repair and systematically worked through our list as money allowed. The funny thing was, with nowhere to go and little more than food and booze left to buy, we suddenly found ourselves with a lot more bank in our bank account. It helped that my quarter-time work status qualified me for unemployment benefits, which came with the extra $600 a week from the feds for five of the six weeks I was on the dole. This extra three grand, along with our stimulus money, was put toward the repairs and helped us, at least initially, avoid adding to our mound of credit card debt. It did wonders for the stress that had been pressing down on my shoulders for the past decade. Ultimately, our credit cards would suffer some abuse, as the big to-do list only got bigger after the recommendations made by our real estate agent to pretty up the joint and put us in position to pass a home inspection. By the time we were done, after checking off the plumbing, a major chimney rebuild, a sewer line repair, exterior trim replacement, new kitchen tile, new range oven, new microwave, and a fresh exterior paint job, we had spent over $6,000 getting our house ready to put on the market. But before we could do that, there were even bigger conversations in front of us, this time with our bosses. In the middle of our shut-down home repair spectacular, Erica was promoted to senior graphic designer. She had known about the promotion for months, but when she first caught wind of it, we weren't even talking about moving, at least not seriously. Once it came and we had a clear look at what the promotion meant professionally and financially, it was not something any reasonable person would walk away from to start anew in another job market which meant that the only way we could make the move back east was if Erica got approved to work remotely on a permanent basis. Most of Erica's co-workers spent most of their time under the halogens, but even before the pandemic, remote work was not unheard of within her company. Erica already had been working some of her hours from home each week, and in the first 18 months on the job, she had proven to her boss, a compassionate working mother herself, that her output would not falter at home, and in fact, like many professionals at the outset of the pandemic, Erica was feeling even more focused and productive after trading sensible heels for fuzzy socks. Nonetheless, the talk with her boss was a moment of truth moment, a certified big deal for our family, one that would determine whether we stayed put in Boise or put both feet firmly into the moving process so we could make it to Ohio before the fall. If Erica got a no, that meant no go on the move, and we'd simply settle back into our life in Boise and take another look at our long-term plans post-pandemic, which wouldn't be terrible. After all, we liked Boise, and at least we'd be caught up on home repairs for a while. Still, it would have been difficult to disguise our disappointment in that scenario, but thankfully Erica got a yes, and a quick one at that, and our course was set. But not before it was my turn for a talk with the bosses. 
Years ago, in an honest inebriated moment over the second or third after work beer, I had revealed that a move back east was highly likely before I hit 45, but the conversation got left at the bar and it never resurfaced, and anyway, it was a moot point at the time. But here we were all of a sudden, and no matter how many times I went over the script in my head, or how carefully I considered the timing and circumstances, I knew that no one, including me, was going to be fully prepared for the talk. I had worked at the record exchange for nearly 11 years by then, almost triple the amount of time I had spent at any previous gig, and the people I worked for and with I considered family and friends, ones who played a huge part in a monumental shift in personal and professional well-being one decade ago. After years of feeling out of place in various work environments, mainly newsrooms, when I started working at the record exchange, I finally stopped feeling like a square peg in a round hole. I finally felt I had found a job that I was born to do. I finally felt at home. And I was pretty certain that leaving Boise meant leaving that behind. When the day came, it came abruptly, a few days before my target date and during a casual conversation that suddenly turned serious. It was far from ideal. Early morning, caught off guard, no time to go over my mental script, but there was no turning back. I gathered my composure as best I could and laid it all out on the table where we sat, the same circular office table that had hosted so many talks and toasts of kinship before it. As my heart pounded and emotions surged inside me, I shared the what's and the why's and the how's, and among the transition scenarios I spelled out, I pitched one out there idea that wouldn't mean a complete goodbye. Then I drove home to start the real work of moving three lives 2,000 miles across a country in full COVID crisis mode. Episode 6. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 5. Six days. Six weeks. Six months. No matter how much time you give yourself and how much planning you do, when it comes to a big life event, it still ends up feeling like everything happens all at once. June 2020 was a month of maximum overdrive. When we decided that March to move back east in the middle of the first global pandemic in a century, we approached the process like a marathon. One measured step at a time, or in our case, one box at a time. That was the mantra I adopted early on, and one I started spouting around the house to anyone who would listen, even when I was talking to myself. Which was often. It's simplistic and it's cliched, but one box at a time helped me stay grounded and focused on the task at hand, and more importantly, it helped me avoid peeking at the long scroll of a to-do list we had in front of us. There were big broad strokes and specific little details, with one often dictating the pace of the other, and the trick was to not get overwhelmed no matter how fast or slow we were progressing. It mostly worked. June brought a series of wind sprints in the middle of the marathon. Up to that point, every step we took, be it taping up another box or booking another home repair, was made with a summer 2020 move in mind, but with no guarantee it would actually happen. But when my wife Erica got the green light for permanent remote work on June 11th, the exhibition run turned into a real race, and we kicked into high gear. We started that evening by reconnecting with our realtor. Two days later, on the morning of June 13th, Andrea was sitting at our dining room table with the listing paperwork. She also scheduled her photographer to visit that afternoon and take exterior shots of the house, which spurred a mad dash to tidy up the front, rake the lawn, trim the tree, and otherwise paint the impression of a neat and orderly life in our home, at least from the street view. 
Most of this work took place during a rare morning rainstorm, because of course it did. As I lopped off branches with a pruner, dime-sized water droplets pelting my face, for the first time it felt like we might not make it across the finish line. We had a timeline to keep if we were going to get to Ohio before the start of the new school year, and with two months remaining on the clock, doubt was creeping in. But I didn't let it do me in. Outside the world of metaphors, it's physically impossible to stay head down and keep your chin up, but that's the headspace I tried to maintain. It mostly worked. Fortunately, we had spent the spring packing dozens of boxes, one at a time of course, and getting rid of crap that we didn't want to carry with us 2,000 miles across the country. By June, thrift store donation runs had become weekly errands, and Erica had taken to Facebook Marketplace to sell off bric-a-brac that was too old or too bruised to justify bringing with us. We sorted and sold some of her late father's western wear and gave the rest of his clothing, 12 bags of it, to a homeless shelter. A 17-year-old creeper van sitting lifeless in our driveway was donated to Radio Boise for a tax write-off. Some serious skin was being shed. One of my big projects was cleaning out the garage, historically one of my favorite warm-weather jobs. For as much of a collector as I was, I've always been prone to purging, and fortunately I married a fellow Virgo who shared this liberating impulse. Spending hours in a dusty garage ridding our lives of domestic debris with a cold beer and classic rock as my companions was a near-spiritual experience. And in this case, it played a vital role in the moving process. As more and more boxes migrated from the house to our garage, we found ourselves with less and less space to maneuver in there, and we still had mountains of stuff to shift out of the house. Especially after the staging company paid us a visit. Andrea had strongly recommended we stage the house. Home staging, which apparently has been a thing since the early 70s, is a fascinating science to me, something I scoffed at in the past in the same what's-the-point way that I have scoffed at low-fat Twinkies and dog apparel. It seems strange to turn our house into a film set for a life we didn't live, and one likely to never be lived inside these walls. Inevitably, someone else would move in and fill it up with their shit, so why the false pretense? But I get it. Nobody wants to see how you lived in the space. They want to imagine how they would live in it. And the point of staging was to create a neutral, breathable, inviting environment. A clean slate. We were looking for our own 2,000 miles away. Staging, as it were, had crossed our minds before Andrea suggested it. But following months of epic purging, we figured maybe we'd move a few more things to the garage, hide the rest of our shame in the closets, and call it good. That's what you'd call the amateur approach. The professional approach, conversely, proved to be a comprehensive takedown of our interior design aesthetic. I took notes during the initial June 15th walkthrough with the stager, and clear everything is written for multiple rooms. Even the vintage turntable, which I casually mentioned might play nicely off the mid-century modern architecture, didn't make the cut. Few things did. Later that day, when we received a follow-up email with official marching orders from the stager, we were instructed, with the exception of our beds, to prepack all furniture, artwork, and accessories, clear all countertops and surfaces, and remove most curtains, bedding, and lamps. For the spare bedrooms, the email bluntly stated, clear as much as possible, followed by a smiley face emoji to soften the blow or whatever. Smiley face or no, the message was clear. Our life didn't look good. To make that life look good would require hiding even more of our stuff 
while somehow keeping our one-car garage from giving off mad hoarder vibes to prospective buyers. So the next day we contacted Pods. This ended up being one of our best decisions, not just for the home sale but for the big move back east too. When we moved from New Hampshire to Boise in 2006, we did it on the cheap, which meant a shared semi-trailer that was loaded on a train for a rickety 2,700-mile journey and a bunch of banged-up belongings on the back end. We vowed not to repeat that mistake next time we moved, and Pods offered a reasonably affordable option with climate-controlled storage and train-free transportation, and it just so happened that their nearest Northeast Ohio facility was located one town over from Hudson in Streetsboro. On June 18th, three days after the stagers' visit, and only one week after Erica talked with her boss, Andrea pounded a coming-soon sign into our front yard. We had made sure to pause and take deep breaths throughout the process, but the pace was dizzying nonetheless. Meanwhile, the summer COVID surge was, well, surging. Idaho was quickly turning into one of the worst places to be in North America, and on June 22nd, as we wrapped a five-piece sectional couch in plastic to store in the pod that had just replaced the creeper van in the driveway, the news hit that Boise and Ada County would be moving back a stage in the phased reopening. As exciting as our move was, with a major virus spike as the backdrop, the process was a bit disconcerting, much more than it would have been in quote-unquote normal times. From Mike the plumber to Andrea the realtor to emoji-slinging stagers, our house played host to a rotating cast of potential germ hosts, some masked, some not, who were helping us finish the race while also risking our health. On the morning of June 24th, as Ada County officially regressed to stage 3, a pods driver pulled into the driveway to pick up our first fully loaded pod. One day prior, we had professional movers come over to pack the pod the right way, as in, not our way. The Tetris job they did was amazing, and most of our stuff would make it to Ohio in one piece. We had successfully stalled the stagers for a few days to get this first pod out of our lives, which was easier said than done. Not only were we sprinting to clear the decks inside the house to prep for the staging, we were also making big decisions on the fly, knowing that whatever went into the pod would be leaving our lives for at least two months. Turns out we didn't miss most of it, and the bare-bones living arrangement that followed inspired even more purging when we made it to the other side in Ohio. The moment the pods guy backed into the driveway, the staging company pulled up in front of the house, and much earlier than scheduled. Inside, meanwhile, we were frantically sliding boxes and other odds and ends into the living room to transfer to the garage when we could get to it, but that couldn't happen until the pod was out of the way, and as it happened, we were still fast walking the last of our stuff out of the house as the stagers started hauling in theirs. I had no idea what qualified as inviting in the staging world, but as a steady stream of plastic plants, static artwork, and grayish furniture entered our front door, it was evident that inviting equaled innocuous. I still don't know what was wrong with our bed linens and right with theirs, but I was capable of wrapping my head around the logic of matching nightstands, and once everything was in its right place, I had to admit that our house felt unnaturally spacious and looked sexy awesome. Regardless, settling in that first night felt a tad unsettling, though it came with a sigh of relief and a stiff drink, following the flurry of activity it took us to reach this point. In that moment, and for the rest of our time in our home that would soon be just a house, it felt like we were living in a showroom, which must be part of the point. Our daughter Magnolia remarked that it didn't smell like our house anymore. 
Any lingering doubt I had about the psychology of staging was erased after I took a good whiff of the living room air and agreed with her. When we awoke under borrowed linens the next morning, two weeks after Erica got approved for permanent remote work, and exactly three months after the start of the shutdown, our home of 14 years officially hit the market. Episode 7. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 6. Following a whirlwind month spent racing to get our house in Boise on the market, late June and early July of 2020 brought a disjointed, hurry-up-and-wait downshift. And a nerve-wracking one at that. Given how blazing hot the Boise real estate market was, even in the middle of a raging pandemic, we had expected the house to sell fast, and fast in the Boise market had come to mean as little as one day, and often following a bidding war. Behavior was bordering on vampiric. A real estate story in the state newspaper illustrated this point by referencing a Seattle doctor who purchased a house in Boise sight unseen for a move he wasn't planning on making for another six months. Last time we sold a house, 14 years prior in northern New Hampshire, was a much different scene. A sagging market in a struggling mill town, a months-long slog colored by a botched sale and deafening silence, ever-decreasing expectations until the house eventually sold for a modest profit that barely covered our moving expenses to Boise. But at least there wasn't a pandemic. Not that it mattered much in the 2020 real estate world. For sale signs and open houses were still popping up everywhere, and people were still clamoring to buy houses in Boise. The only change being that prospective buyers touring homes were required to wear masks and shoe condoms and let their agent do all the touching. Our expectations were heightened even more following 13 showings in the first nine hours our house was on the market June 25th. We were giddy and restless that Thursday evening as we waited to hear from our realtor with the first offer, even though we told Andrea we wouldn't make a decision until the end of the weekend. But after hearing nothing, we took our nervous energy to bed and did our best to try to sleep. It mostly worked. The next day, on Friday the 26th, we finally heard back from Andrea but not with any mind-blowing offers, or any offers at all. Instead, she shared the initial feedback she was hearing from buyer's agents, and it wasn't promising. For as much as the house had been gussied up with bad art and fake fruit, and staged to look more spacious than it really was, prospective buyers were seeing right through the smoke and mirrors and zeroing in on what Andrea called the atypical quirks of our home, such as the kitchen was small, the laundry closet next to the dining area next to the small kitchen was awkward. The bonus room felt like a garage, which was accurate because, indeed, it once was a garage. The one-car garage that actually was a garage was detached from the house and thus lacked an entry point into said house. The faux island hardscaping in the backyard, a bad idea when the original owners installed it in the 60s, and one that quickly lost its exotic catch appeal after we moved in, looked like a headache to maintain because, indeed, it was a headache to maintain. There also was the matter of the exterior, which we were still painting when the house went on the market. My wife Erica is an artist and professional painter, so historically I have assumed the role of day laborer for painting projects and stayed out of her way except to hand her occasional beers. But as we found ourselves running out of time, I ended up picking up a brush too. We had five sides left to finish, all in the back hidden from street view, and I was left with a feeling that, psychologically, our half-painted house was playing mind games with potential buyers, even though we reassured all parties involved that the job would be done in a matter of days. Painted house or no, 
There was little more we could do but sit and wait for what is known in the real estate business as the quote-unquote right buyer to come along. And sitting and waiting was already proving to be frustrating and exhausting. Every time a showing got scheduled, we had to vacate the house and take our cat and dog with us. Which doesn't sound difficult on paper, but with an ailing 12-year-old dog who had to be lifted in and out of the truck, walked at a clip of one mile an hour, and often forgot he was inside when he dunked his butt down to take a dump, some minor logistics were involved. The showings were rarely back-to-back, and the text alerts often popped up 30 minutes before a scheduled showing time, so we had to keep ourselves, and our tidy house, as prepared as possible to leave at a moment's notice. And then we had to figure out where to go and what to do, and with a stressed-out cat and slow-moving dog in tow, our options were limited. By default, we usually ended up at the park two streets over, and depending on how much time we had to kill, we would either sit inside the truck or outside on the ground, trying to keep morale high and discomfort low as we loitered under the summer sun. After two straight days of this with zero offers on the table, Andrea called an audible that none of us had expected to pull from the playbook, an open house. Her listings were averaging four days on the market, and clearly ours was going to be the wrong type of exception if we didn't try another approach. Given the choice between Saturday and Sunday, we opted for Sunday the 28th to buy us time that Saturday to regroup, reassess, and run errands before a slate of afternoon showings. I called my own Audible and bought something like three dozen bags of fresh mulch, and spreading it around the backyard, my bare arms and blue jeans turning black from the chemical dye sweating off the wood chips, felt something like an act of desperation. We killed time during the open house at my brother's, day drinking on the back patio and visiting with his family, anxiously awaiting word from Andrea. When we finally heard from her, the surface-level report was positive. 21 groups through the house in three hours, including one very interested buyer who brought their agent with them. The full report the following day, however, was not so positive, a mirror image of the previous report noting the same atypical quirks. You could almost hear our nerves fraying, and the screaming out back on the other side of the chain-link fence was pulling us further away from the zen-like state of mind we had been trying to maintain. Years ago, a large family had moved into the rental home bordering our backyard. And when I say bordering, I mean that the back of their house was so close to ours that you could almost make out what they were having for dinner from our living room couch. The house's owner was a quiet, friendly widower whose only strike against him, if you could even call it that, was having a knack for starting up his lawnmower the moment we sat down for Sunday dinner. We never knew where he moved or what happened to him, but we did know that at some point he sold the house to his tenants. Then they started having more children. And more children. At last count they had six, and based on our observations, and we had a front row view of their lives through our back window, their style of parenting and pet ownership, in lieu of traditional methods of loving guidance and discipline, was to shove all the kids and the dogs into the backyard and let nature take its course. When they purchased a trampoline, it henceforth became the focal point of backyard activity, and that activity consisted of up to six kids jumping and screaming for hours on end while the dogs barked at them from the ground below. In the summer months, a water hose was added into the mix, which only raised the din of their existential shrieks. Eventually, we made the observation that none of the kids appeared to be growing or aging, that they seemed to be stuck in time or stricken with a curse, and henceforth they were known as the vampire children. Rather than take it out on the kids, we mostly took a grin-and-bear-it approach to their incessant audible presence. Devoting significant time and energy to the issue felt like a lost cause anyway. 
The one direct attempt we had made years ago to address the barking dogs had only solved the problem for an afternoon or so, and given the parents' visible indifference to their spawn, it's safe to say they cared even less about the well-being of their neighbors. But when the pandemic hit, and background problems like problem neighbors hit center stage, it was evident that something needed to be done for the sake of our work-from-home sanity. Initially, that something was calling around for estimates on privacy fences. A few companies came over to take measurements and give us quotes, and we even talked to our surrounding neighbors, including the head vampire, about sharing the costs. But after Beer Gut Nosferatu revealed that they were planning on putting in a privacy fence of their own in the fall, we tabled our plans and soon pivoted to a cross-country move. A move that, while not directly influenced by their presence, was absolutely partially influenced by our proximity to the vampire children. On the morning of June 30th, two days after the open house and a smattering of Monday showings, as we waited impatiently for that elusive first offer, Erica had an epiphany. The vampire children had been outside during most of the showings, and we had literally left the driveway on Monday to the sound of their eternal water hose trampoline game. The next day while I was at work, Erica texted me a photo of the chain link fence from our living room window. Now, when it comes to our relationship, you can usually count on me to be the one who takes mouth-frothing action when exterior forces force my hand, but in this case, it was Erica who took the raging bull of her emotions by the horns, and it was a thing of magnificent beauty. I had to enlarge the photo to see what I was looking at, and upon zooming in, I saw that Erica had gone to a home improvement store, purchased a cheap roll of six-foot-high bamboo fencing, and zip-tied it to the chain link, thus hiding the vampire children from view. After all the repairs and all the money we had spent getting our house ready to sell, after all the prospective buyers, more than 50 of them, had walked through our house over the longest five days of our lives, a $25 roll of bamboo proved to be the sprinkling of pixie dust we needed. Shortly after midnight on July 1st, our daughter Magnolia's 12th birthday, Andrea emailed us with news of our first offer. One counter offer and half a day later, we had a contract in hand before we lit the cake. Episode 8. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 7. In July 2020, we bought a house over FaceTime. We did not, as the phrase of the year goes, have that on our 2020 bingo card. The house was 2,000 miles away in a town we had rarely visited, on a road we weren't sure how to pronounce, in a neighborhood we didn't know. But by July of 2020, when the world's idea of normal had already been redefined, making the biggest investment of our lives through a small handheld video screen seemed like perfectly rational and sensible behavior. Buying a house over a smartphone may sound stupid, but it was the best option given the time crunch created by the sale of our house in Boise and the start of the school year in Hudson, Ohio. We willfully put ourselves in this position, but nonetheless, our time frame was much shorter than we had planned in early 2020 when we initially made the decision to move. Selling our house represented a total commitment, and once we signed the purchase and sale agreement on July 1st, there was no turning back. Now we had to find a house in Hudson, and find it fast. The closing date on our home sale was scheduled for August 7th. The first day of the 2021 academic year at Hudson Middle School was August 31st. With those dates etched in our minds, we got to work finding our new home from afar. Fortunately, we had a head start in more ways than one. Not only had my wife Erica been researching Hudson, especially the housing market, since the fall of 2019, but my mother happens to be a real estate agent in Ohio. 
When we called my parents in early June to reveal our moving plans, it was partially to put mom to work. Erica and I had started looking at homes even before that call, but we were stuck in a holding pattern until our house in Boise sold, and that meant that the houses we were eyeing in Hudson were long gone by the time we had a contract, because the housing market in Northeast Ohio was nearly as nuts as it was in Boise, and Hudson, in particular, was bonkers. The town was experiencing a historic shortage of available inventory, and houses were getting scarfed up within days, or hours, of hitting the market. Fresh off the frustration of a home sale that came on full throttle but threatened to stall out, we were now getting a bitter taste of what it meant to be buyers in a highly competitive market. Unbeknownst to us, we were part of a growing pandemic trend, that of remote workers moving somewhere quieter and less expensive than the bigger cities they had been inhabiting. And while Boise is starting to look and feel bigger, coloring this as a city mouse to country mouse move isn't entirely accurate. Yes, Hudson is a suburb of only 22,000, roughly 10% of Boise's population, but is located halfway between Akron and Cleveland in a combined statistical area of 3.5 million people compared to the Treasure Valley's 750,000. The key thing was price. Despite Hudson's distinction as one of the most expensive places to live in Summit County, houses are still way more affordable than they are in Boise. In March 2020, according to Realtor.com, the median listing price per square foot in Hudson was $148 compared to $209 in Boise. Fast forward one year to March 2021, and Hudson actually dropped to $143 per square foot, while Boise shot up to $269. Like other remote workers contributing to the trend, we wanted more space. It topped our wish list long before the pandemic, but once all of us were forced to be home all the time, it became apparent, more than ever, that our want for space was more of a need. There's a lot of love among our family three, and we often end up in the same room together, but when it comes to work and school, we all needed some distance from one another, and from the dirty dishes in the sink that needed washed, and the clean laundry on the couch that needed folded. This move was about creating physical and emotional space for ourselves, and after living in a shrinking house for 14 years, especially those first few months of the pandemic, we knew exactly what we wanted with our new home. More room to spread out, more room for storage, more room between our neighbors. A basement, a two-car garage, a kitchen that comfortably fit more than one person at a time. We didn't think those were unreasonable requests. We worked hard, gave back to our community, and lived with gratitude for our level of abundance. But it became clear to us that living in Boise wasn't going to get better for us, and the better life we sought for ourselves was waiting in a more reasonable zip code. In Hudson, we could get twice as much house for roughly half of what it cost in Boise, which is to say, we couldn't afford that much house in Boise, which was half the point of moving. Thanks to Erica's thorough research, we were finding houses in Hudson that, at least on paper, met our parameters. We both wanted a big lot in a low-noise neighborhood with easy access to trails and water. Erica wanted a house on a road that didn't have a double yellow line. Not yet knowing my employment situation, I wanted a house on the lower end of our budget, and no matter the price, I wanted basement life again. Quirky features or locations got bonus points, so of course the secluded house on four acres with a small lake was intriguing. Until my parents got up close and saw all the scum. Then there was the small issue of the full foundation repair needed to keep the house from collapsing into the basement. My mother and father drove by countless houses and walked us through a half dozen or so FaceTime showings. Brafferton Avenue, Barlow Road, Blue Heron Drive. 
We got to know the streets of Hudson first by the houses we toured, and those houses we were finding fell into two categories. The ones we liked that were already under contract before we got inside, and the ones we liked that were still available because of pond scum, bad basements, and the like. It amounted to a big bummer that started to feel like a brick wall, especially after touring one promising house that we were ready to pounce on, only to find that the listing agent had let my mother show it even after it had sold. Adding insult to injury, the main feature of this house was a swank, softcore living room with cherry red carpet, and I had already spent too much time imagining myself holding court in this room with the candlelight just right and the hi-fi in the background. Like a bad basement, our spirits were starting to collapse underneath us when I got the welcome news that I got to keep my job as marketing director for the record exchange. I had pitched the idea and explained how it could work when I told my bosses about our move, and I was elated to hear that they were willing to give it a shot. At the time, I remember saying that if I could pick up the record exchange and bring it with us, I would, and in a way, I did. Running a marketing department for an independent record store from 2,000 miles away might look odd on paper, but in this brave new world of remote work, just about anything is possible, and everyone agreed it was worth trying, at least until the pandemic tapped out. We were still working on pre-approval for our home loan as we worked out the details of my newly remote position, and adding that guaranteed income to our baseline only helped our cause. And it helped me come to the realization that Erica was right all along about looking for a house a bit north of the butt end of our budget. With our excitement somewhat tempered by the realities of Hudson's torrid housing market, we marched on while keeping our eyes on the clock. Four days after the adult film palace slipped through our fingers, on the morning of July 18th, we landed the first showing for a 50-year-old Cape Cod that had just hit the market. It was nearly 3,000 square feet, on close to an acre of land bordered by pines, and located in a low-noise area of town. No double yellow line on the road, and a big-ass half-finished basement. The back neighbor's house was half a football field away, and mostly hidden by trees. We were less than five minutes into the video tour when we knew it was the one. It checked off most of the boxes, and it came with an amazing quirk a set of interior stairs leading from the garage to the basement. As we virtually walked down the stairs via FaceTime, I half-jokingly told my mother to halt the tour and hightail it to her office to write the offer. In the end, it took us only two hours to get to that point, and when we did, we made an offer slightly above list price in the hopes we could keep this one from sliding away. We also included a testimonial letter complete with family photo, which apparently is a thing now in real estate, one we were unaware of until the family who purchased our home in Boise sent a written plea and a shiny happy people portrait along with their offer. This little touch is meant to humanize the transaction and tug at the heartstrings or whatever, but in the case of our home sale, we were just happy to have an offer. They could have sent it on fart-scented paper, and it would have smelled like the first rose of spring. After emailing our signed offer and syrupy letter to my mother, a short but excruciating waiting game ensued. Knowing that multiple showings followed ours that day, my mother strategically set a deadline of 8 p.m. Eastern for the owners to accept or reject our offer. That left us with five hours to kill, a better scenario than the five days it took for our house to sell, but in some ways those five hours felt longer. Initially, we considered leaving the house, but it was 90 degrees on a Saturday during the summer COVID surge, and we couldn't think straight enough to think of something good to do. Ultimately, we decided to sit tight, stay put, and chill. Erica hit the hammock out back. We both cracked open a beer. I might have taken a nap. Honestly, most of it was a blur until my mother called right before the deadline, 
with the news that our offer had been accepted over five others and that our heartfelt letter had helped seal the deal. That night, we slept better than we had in the past four months, a heavy sigh of relief slumber, and we woke up Sunday morning with only one piece of the puzzle left to place, preparing for a 2,000-mile trek across COVID country. Episode 9. We moved across the country during the pandemic. Here's how and why. Part 8. In August 2020, we crossed a nation in turmoil in a rented minivan. Our move to Ohio was not a vacation, and we did not try to trick ourselves into thinking it was. There was no side trip to Yellowstone, no stop at Rushmore for a selfie, nothing of the sort. The swimsuits we packed never left our suitcases. We hit the road shortly after 3 p.m. Mountain Time on Monday, August 10th, but not before a final frazzled sprint to tie up loose ends and turn in our keys. The closing was set for Friday, August 7th, but we had business to conduct before we could leave Boise, so we negotiated three extra days of occupancy at 100 bucks a night and became renters in the home of 14 years we had just sold. It was cheaper than a nice motel, and also necessary considering we still had a half-packed pod in the driveway and a short but daunting list of to-dos to get through before making our way east. The last bits of moving are the worst, especially when it's cross-country and not cross-town. It's a road we've been down several times. There's no caravan of family and friends with trucks, no leisurely back and forth between addresses old and new, no going back a few days later for anything you forgot. Before this move, my wife Erica had lived in five states, and I had lived in three. But it never gets easier. In fact, one could make the argument that it only gets harder with age. Throw a pandemic into the mix and shrink your timeline by 10 months, and you've presented yourself with a considerable logistical challenge. My back still hurts from it. Timing was everything the week before our departure. Our pickup truck was ill-equipped for three humans and two pets to share space for 2,000 miles, so we decided to ship it to Ohio. Our other vehicle, an 18-year-old SUV that a mechanic had described as tired, was unlikely to make it out of the time zone, so we donated it to Radio Boise for another tax break. In both cases, the details of the transaction were vague, so rather than tempt fate, we rented the minivan a few days before our departure date so we wouldn't get stuck without a car. It also gave us time to solve the Tetris of turning a grand caravan into a traveling kennel. Originally, the plan was to make the trip somewhat fun and flexible, not to mention functional, and rent an RV. Our daughter Magnolia beamed when we suggested it. With a house cat and terminally ill dog in tow, the extra space would be welcomed by human and animal alike, and we thought the RV would turn a multi-day chore into more of a vacation. More importantly, with the country smack dab in the middle of the record-breaking summer COVID surge, Trading hotels for our own controllable space seemed like a smart approach. We got the idea after a music industry friend had made a short pit stop in Boise during a family road trip. As with most travel industries, the RV rental business had taken a deep dive at the start of the pandemic, and by June Chris and his family were able to rent a one-way RV at half price. But it turns out that Cruise America is really picky about its one-way rentals. When I called to reserve the 20-foot compact model, I was told the only available size for our location and travel dates was the largest in the fleet, the 30-foot behemoth, and even that wasn't guaranteed. In order to rent one way, the final destination of the RV had to be approved, and the vibe I got from the customer service rep when I mentioned Cleveland 
suggested our plan would prove to be more pain in the ass than six-wheeled pleasure cruise. We woke up shortly after dawn on the 10th and set about getting shit done and getting on the road to Salt Lake by noon. Wishful thinking in hindsight. The movers were coming first thing to finish loading the pod, and the stagers were following close behind to collect their fake plants and emotion-neutral furniture sets. We had beds to dismantle and suitcases to zip up, a cooler to cram, and a fridge to clean out. Then the goodbyes. Under normal circumstances, we would have organized a big, drippy bon voyage party. Instead, our farewells were clipped, distanced, and most cases, remote. Among our closest friends, we opted for a few intimate evenings outdoors leading up to the move. On departure day, in-person visits were limited to my brother and sister-in-law, a handful of Magnolia's friends, and our neighbors across the street. In all, I hugged less than 20 people in the five months before we left, when it easily could have been 200. Leaving the way we did felt like running away, and in fact, run away had turned into something like a mantra once we had made the decision to leave Boise. Which wasn't an easy choice. Until it was. We didn't move to Boise in the mid-aughts because it was a boomtown. In fact, we got there just in time for the bus that led to the Great Recession. But Boise had a job for me and we had family there, and our prospects looked better in a mid-market capital city than they did in the New England mountain mill town where our lives were stuck in neutral. We were itching for a new adventure. Erica had grown up in Colorado and missed the West. We were hours away from any major city and missed music and nightlife. Our careers, if you could call them that at that point in our young marriage, were stagnating. We were ready to take off our training wheels, get into gear, and start thinking about growing up. We moved to Boise with a five-year plan. But what that plan was exactly was never defined. And when we didn't find our people or take to the city right away, we almost took off. Had Magnolia not been born, it's highly likely we would have bolted well before year five. But in retrospect, we're glad we stuck it out. The biggest surprise, to us and several others, was seeing Boise blossom post-recession, and not just seeing, but contributing. Layoffs within three months of each other in 2009 inspired career shifts that thrust us into the city's creative and economic resurgence and gave our work purpose. More importantly, we found our people, a tight-knit, collaborative community of artists, musicians, entrepreneurs, and benefactors who turned Boise into an it city with a cultural scene envied by others in larger zip codes. Inevitably, the best Rocky Mountain secret, as Outside Magazine anointed Boise, became a buzzword in bigger cities, and suddenly the city of trees started topping the list of every top 10 this and best of that. All the attention spurred a population boom, a 23% increase in Ada County since the 2010 census, and ultimately inflation, particularly with housing. According to Zillow, in the past 10 years, Boise's housing market has tripled in value, putting the city, you guessed it, at number one in the nation. It's just as bad for renters. In the past year, apartment rents increased 16%, also tops in the country, putting Boise on par with major league cities like Atlanta, Dallas, and Minneapolis. Financially speaking, we were starting to feel boxed in. Like most Americans, we've carried toxic debt for most of our adult lives. Anytime we are in a position to knock it back, some unexpected expense or dip in income forces us to add to the dog pile. Had we stayed put in Boise, maybe we could have refinanced eventually, but we still would have been stuck in our small house and stuck with our amount of debt. We just couldn't get over the hump 
and all signs were pointing to life in Boise only getting harder for anyone other than the upper class. And while we liked, and in some cases loved, our lives in Boise, it was a hill we were no longer willing to climb, and when we found ourselves in a position to cash out on our house and live the life we were seeking for a fraction of the cost in Northeast Ohio, the choice was easy. With one strategic move, we erased five figures of credit card debt, made a down payment on a house twice the size of our Boise home, and had a little left over for a rainy day fund. It may have been a no-brainer financially, but leaving Boise was a tough decision otherwise. It was tough to leave my brother. It was tough to leave friends and co-workers. It was tough to leave mountains, the music scene, and certain burritos. There are trade-offs to every decision, and those were big ones. But it wasn't just about money. Idaho's prevailing social and political views were at odds with our ideals when we moved there, and in many ways they only worsened. Living in progressive Boise provided a shield, but there were cracks in the armor. That much was evident during Donald Trump's presidency, and especially in 2020 as the pandemic turned increasingly political and anti-maskers and other self-styled freedom fighters descended on downtown Boise. The peaceful rallies held in the wake of George Floyd's murder were infiltrated by bona fide Nazis. We also had Magnolia's well-being in mind. Idaho is dead last in the nation in per-pupil spending, and while the college system in Idaho is sufficient enough, moving to Ohio expanded her options for schools with higher ratings, more programs, and cheaper off-campus rent. She'll also have a life to build after college, and as my brother lamented after sharing another news piece about Boise's off-the-rails housing market, our kids won't be able to afford living there. So yeah, run away. As we fixed up our house to get ready to sell, anytime real estate news came across the wire, anytime some alligator brain blew by in a pickup with a Trump flag flapping in the wind, anytime one of the vampire children shrieked from the other side of the backyard fence, we knew we were making the right decision. Leaving the bad scene in Boise behind on August 10th, we wondered what awaited us on the non-holiday road as we entered the bowels of Middle America en route to Ohio. I absolutely love driving cross-country. There's no better way to get a feel for the sheer massiveness of the USA than four wheels on asphalt. It's amazing it's all the same country. The lack of social and political unity makes sense when you drive through it, with everything you see and everyone you encounter, when you juxtapose a parking lot lunch in Jerome, Idaho, with a long-ago dress-up dinner in the West Village, and try to reconcile the fact those alien worlds share the same border. We arrived for our first overnight stop in Salt Lake City three hours later than planned. We haven't spent much time in SLC, but even in a city known for sleepy nightlife, downtown after dark on a pandemic Monday seemed particularly lifeless. Which was fine, because we were comprehensively exhausted, and all we wanted to do was eat and go to bed. We found a nearby vegan restaurant, the Vertical Diner, and had a late takeout dinner in our hotel room. After we ate, I took our aging dog Max for a walk and bathroom break. For the past few months, he had been having accidents inside the house, so before we left we lined the floor of the minivan with plastic sheeting and a blanket. We also added anti-anxiety meds to his cocktail of pharmaceuticals. Max led me on a loopy lap around the hotel with nothing doing, not even a pee, and with little in the way of greenery along our path, he barely stopped to smell the smells. He was confused as hell about everything. Moments after heading inside to head back upstairs, he took a big dump right in front of the elevator. Fortunately, the hotel was nearly empty, 
and no one, employee or otherwise, saw it happen. Using a plastic doo-doo bag, I deftly pulled the mess off the plush burgundy carpet, avoiding even the faintest of smearing or staining, and led Max back outside to place the noxious bag of hot poop in a trash can far, far away from the lobby. The next morning after checkout, we went back to the vertical diner for a sit-down breakfast. We ate outside on the patio next to the minivan so we could keep the windows rolled down and keep an eye on the animals. The vertical diner morning playlist segued from the Smiths, the boy with the thorn in his side, into America's sister golden hair, and in response I increased our tip by 5%. After breakfast, as we rolled along east into Wyoming, both Max and our cat Cinder settled into the rhythm of the road and mostly slept. Passing through the moon-like landscape of southern Wyoming, we were barraged by billboards advertising Little America ahead. 140 rooms, spotless bathrooms, playground, 70-cent cones. The only sign not selling something gave a shout-out to the truckers. Thank you. Keep America moving. Little America is a strange man-made outcropping of travel services designed to resemble a quaint small-town village but no matter how much you cock your head and squint your eyes, it still looks like somewhere you stop to take a crap and treat your dry throat to a Snapple. Not even 24 hours into the trip, we were already seeing pandemic politics play out in front of us. City folks seemed far more concerned than hill folk about wearing masks, but after passing a billboard in Rupert, Idaho demanding, get the U.S. out of the U.N., we realized there were more pressing concerns in the middle of nowhere than a public health crisis. Against this backdrop, Little America was an anomaly, at least among the staff. A masked worker was stationed outside the gas station slash convenience store, opening the door for customers and wiping the handles, and social distancing and sanitized hands were politely encouraged inside. Walking in, my dulled senses were awakened by a blast of cold recycled air and the sounds of U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday playing overhead. I nearly flinched at the dissonance between the song and my surroundings. Even if I tried, there was no way I could properly contextualize peeing in the barrens of Wyoming while hearing Bono sing about civil unrest in Northern Ireland. Beautiful day? Maybe. She thinks my tractor's sexy? Definitely. Back outside tending to Max, he dropped his wobbly hips to pee on a patch of grass next to the minivan and lost his balance, collapsing midstream on top of the steaming puddle of piss. I rolled him to his side and gave him a cheap bath with antibacterial wipes and paper towels, then hoisted him back into the van. Broomfield, Colorado, Erica's birthplace, was our next overnight. A stop in this Denver suburb was the closest we came to a vacation activity, which consisted of driving by the house where Erica grew up before heading to the hotel a few miles away. We stayed at the Aloft, a pet-friendly boutique chain that gives you a bone-shaped doo-doo bag holder at check-in. The Aloft vibe is chic and modern, built for overnight guests and local scenesters alike. The lobby was decked out in low furniture with sultry curves and moody LED lighting. Innocuous indie rock provided a pillow of sound that suggested a sexy, chilled-out evening could, and should, be had by all. In normal times, these are places where pretty people congregate with cocktails in hand, but on this night the bar was closed and the Broomfield bourgeoisie was nowhere to be found. In fact, the lobby was empty except for the desk clerk who held the keys to the cooler holding the pre-bagged ice, which we took to our room and splashed in the whiskey we sipped from our bed while watching syndicated reruns. At 4.47 a.m., 
we were jarred awake by the sound and smell of Max shitting on the floor at the bottom of the bed. An hour later, a second round, only this time it was full-blown diarrhea. More diarrhea followed shortly after 8, but at least it was on the linoleum. Before heading the highway for Omaha, we stopped at a pet store and picked up a bag of pee pads and doggy diapers. I didn't have learn how to diaper a dog on my 2020 bingo card, but here we were. The going, while not quite tough, was definitely getting weird. The ride through eastern Colorado and Nebraska was calm by comparison, but nonetheless strange. At the Riata travel stop in Sterling, Colorado, a group of leathery smokers sitting at a picnic table leered at us as we took turns masking up to use the restroom. Inside, compliance with CDC recommendations was roughly 5%. We got in and out quickly. At the combination shell gas station Crispy Crunchy Chicken on I-80 in Hershey, Nebraska, the etching on the door screamed, no shirts, no shoes, no service. But nowhere did we see signs about masks, hand sanitizer, or anything else that would tip a time traveler or extraterrestrial to the raging global pandemic. The bathroom smelled like tinkle and looked like they hadn't been cleaned since the Spanish flu of 18. Eastern Nebraska was a breath of fresh air in more ways than one. Magnolia remarked that she could smell the humidity. Erica said all the trees were making her blood pressure go down. Our skin felt better. The pick-and-eat cornstalks, the big white barns, and the green landscape were welcome sights after the windy slog across the desolate western highways. We weren't quite back east, but we were getting there. We could literally smell it in the air. At the Aloft in Omaha, the scene was much different than Broomfield. Still mellow and vibey, but there were actual people in the lobby, and the pool bar and fitness center remained open. Erica vocally observed this at check-in, and the front desk clerk simply replied, This is a red state. I purchased two cans of beer at the bar and took them back to our room to drink in bed. We made it through the night with no accidents and, more importantly, no carpet diarrhea. Cha-cha-cha. Iowa greeted us the next morning with a gigantic banner in a cornfield that efficiently declared JESUS in all caps Helvetica bold. At the subway in Newton where we stopped for lunch, we were the only customers wearing masks. Even the town police officer on his lunch break was maskless and yucking it up with the locals. At least the employees were masked, though the perspiring woman who cut our bread wore hers below the nose. We ate in the car. Our last night before Ohio was spent in Tinley Park, Illinois, at a cheap chain motel less than a mile off I-80, selected for its proximity to the interstate and Thai food. We were 30 minutes south of Chicago and tempted to take a detour in the morning, specifically so we could go see, per Magnolia's suggestion, Millennium Park's Cloudgate Sculpture, otherwise known as the Bean. Upon further review, we decided that piloting a minivan through the third largest city in the country with a cage cat and a diapered dog just to take our picture with a giant stainless steel bean was not the best idea we had on the trip. We were tired, weary, and ready to be done with the road. And besides, Chicago was only half a day away from Hudson, and we had years of new adventures and proper vacations ahead of us. Ohio, and the welcome arms of family we had not seen in nearly a year, beckoned. East? West? Simple directions, right? But when I say them and think them, a flood of imagery and emotions overtakes me. I'm sure there's a psychological explanation, and probably a physiological one too, 
But when we crossed the Mississippi River into Illinois, when we were officially back east, I literally felt it. What I felt specifically, I doubt I could truly express with a sequence of words organized into sentences. But the closest I can come to describing the web of history, sensory stimuli, muscle memory, comfort, relief, and excitement that washed over me in that moment is that I felt home. Reality got flipped on its head in 2020, and we flipped the script on a year that tried to turn everyone's lives to shit. Several times in the seven-month lead-up to the move, I felt like an actor playing a part in a fictionalized version of my life, or like we'd stepped into a parallel universe, or I was having a prolonged out-of-body experience. Not until that hot August day we left Boise, as we took photos of the empty, echoey rooms in the house that was no longer ours, only then did the move feel real. And surreal. And a little bit sad. As much as I had grown to dislike our house, for the past 14 years it had still been our home, where we guided our only daughter into the world, where we laughed and cried and hurled, where we celebrated and struggled, where together we fought a life-altering recession and years of job insecurity without turning our fists toward each other. That little house where we couldn't get away from each other even if we wanted to, and we rarely did, turned us into adults. Big time. The Suburban Abyss is written, produced, and hosted by Chad Andrew Dryden from his home in between Akron and Cleveland, Ohio. Visit thesuburbanabyss.com to access archives, contribute to the tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or read this week's transmission and block form. Thank you for listening.